Monism. You are here. You were lost at first, but soon began sketching yourself a map of the world, plotting the contours of your life. And like the first explorers, sooner or later you have to contend with the blank spaces on the map. All the experiences you've never had. The part of you still aching to know what's out there. Eventually these questions take on a weight of their own and begin looming over your everyday life. All the billions of doors you had to close in order to take a single step forward. All the things you haven't done and may never get around to doing. All the risks that may or may not have been real. All the destinations that you didn't buy a ticket to. All the lights you see in the distance that you can only wonder about. All the alternate histories you narrowly avoided. All the fantasies that stay dormant inside your head. Everything you're giving up to be where you are right now. The questions that you wrongly assume are unanswerable. It's strange how little of the universe we actually get to see. Strange how many assumptions we have to make just to get by. Stuck in only one body, in only one place at a time. Strange how many excuses we've invented to explain why so much of life belongs in the background. Strange that any of us could ever feel at home in such an alien world. We sketch monsters on the map because we find their presence comforting. They guard the edges of the abyss and force us to look away. So we can live comfortably in the known world, at least for a little while. But if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on Earth, perhaps the only honest answer would be, I don't know. I passed through it once, but I've never really been there. We sketch monsters on the map because we find their presence comforting. They guard the edges of the abyss and force us to look away so we can live comfortably in the known world, at least for a little while. But if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on earth, perhaps the only honest answer would be, I don't know. I passed through it once, but I've never really been there. That's a sad existence, isn't it? Yet, I fear it's one that's all too familiar to us. I'd like to begin by asking you a simple question. Uh, it's simple, but I, I believe that it's incredibly profound. Uh, now, I don't believe that it's the most important question that you have to answer in life. I actually believe that the most important question every human has to answer is what to do with the claims of Jesus. But once you've made that decision, if you have given your life to Christ, I believe that the second most important question is the question that I'm about to ask you in a second. But before I ask that question, I simply want to say thanks for being here. I know that when you woke up this morning after hearing all of the rumors of 8 to 12 feet of snow supposedly falling, right? You thought to yourself, it would be so nice to cuddle back up in bed, and yet you came out. And here's something that I believe 
Something that the Bible teaches, that when God's people gather together, Jesus is present. So because you're here and I'm here, Jesus Christ is here, God wants to do something. And so I'm going to preach with everything that I've got because I believe God wants to move this morning. That question, as I said, is simple, but I think incredibly profound. And it's simply this. What do you want? If you've never really asked yourself that question, what I'm going to say over the next 35 minutes, you can totally tune me out. Okay, I'm giving you permission. And simply sit before God and say, God, I've never really asked that question. Because the answer to that question is incredibly important. What do you want? Because if you don't know what you want, you'll never know what you need. What do you want? Did you know that God designed you, created you to desire holy wants, holy desires? What do you want? You were actually created by God to desire a purpose that matters. Your life is supposed to be bigger than yourself. You were designed by God to have holy wants. What do you want? If you can afford it, you probably haven't found it. What do you want? This time last year, uh, give or take, I think it wasn't this past December, but the December before, my wife and I went out to the movies. Now, uh, Brenda and I have four young kids, and so we don't get to go out to the movies all that often, especially by ourselves, and especially to a real movie theater, okay? In fact, the sad thing is, is I don't think we've been to a movie together at a movie theater since that time. Oh, they're showing a picture of my family. Wonderful. And uh, we had gone out to see The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Fantastic movie. If you haven't seen the movie, I would recommend it to you. This is a retelling of a 1939 short story written by a man named James Thurber. Uh, in the movie, it's Ben Stiller playing the character of Walter Mitty, and Kristen Wiig is in it as well. And, but in James Thurber's short story, he, he basically tells about this man named Walter. Now, Walter's kind of a dolt of a man, right? He's just kind of walking through life sleepwalking, really. and In fact, the only time he ever really seems to live life is in his daydreams. In the book, he's got a wife who's always nagging at him, and in-laws who are always nagging at him, and a boss who's always nagging at him, and he just kind of seems to keep his head down and just plod through life. I think there's one particular scene in the book where uh, he's driving to the grocery store, and his wife's kind of in his ear about the way he's driving, or this or that, and This guy starts to pass him, and all of a sudden, Walter's no longer in a car going to the grocery store with his nagging wife. Now, he's a NASCAR driver in a NASCAR, racing the car next to him, right? And this car's gotten a draft on Walter's race car, and he's started to pull ahead, and they're coming into the last bank, and Walter's just trying to hang on, and he hits the gas just a little bit more and starts to pull away, just as he's about to get to the checkered flag and be the race champion, all of a sudden... His wife snaps him back into reality. Walter, Walter, where are you? She says to him. Well, Walter's a man who walks through life without ever really living. In the movie, they they take some creative license. It doesn't really flow exactly like the short story, but the same principles are there. 
Walter continues to sit through life while everything seems to be happening around him. Uh, There is a movie critic. Her name is April Mosley, and she said this about the movie, and I thought it was really profound. She said, Walter Mitty is you and me. He is any man who has ever self-medicated his ego by imagining better outcomes. He is the ubiquitous everyman that believes that his station in life is static, who cannot put down the iPhone or turn off the TV. He is every one of us that has become a passive passenger in our own distracted lives. You ever feel that way? I know I do. My wife often lovingly gets on me about how often I pull out my phone, right? You ever get those phantom rings in your pocket? What was that? Oh, nothing. Oh, I wonder if anybody said something on Facebook. Oh, I wonder if I got a text. Right? And we're so engrossed and often life just starts to happen around us and we find ourselves just plodding our way through like Walter Mitty. Not really living the life we're intended to live. Right? Because we've got responsibilities. Mortgages to pay and And that's great, and it's all true, and it's real, and yes, you need to do those things. God cares about us taking care of our responsibilities, but we were never intended to sleepwalk through life. What do you want? In the movie, Walter Mitty has to make a decision. Will he be a victim of his fears, or will he actually learn to live? And I believe that's the very question that God is wanting to ask to you and to me this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 19, but especially verses 17, 18, and 19 is what I'd like to focus on. Now, before we can jump into that, though, I need to just kind of set up what's going on in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. Okay, uh, The Apostle Paul becomes a, a believer at first. He was just a Jew who actually hated Christians, uh, was persecuting Christians. And then he met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus blinded him. And, and he wound up becoming a follower of Jesus and, and wound up becoming one of the first missionaries who went around telling others about how Jesus had changed his life, that Jesus was the Messiah. And he started planting churches. Okay? Now, while he was on his missionary journeys, he actually took Timothy with him. On at least one of them. Timothy was like his protege, a young guy that he began to build into and love and care for. In fact, Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. Now, there was a church that uh, Paul had planted in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a a, a bustling city, and and the church had begun to uh, gather more and more believers in Christ. More and more people were hearing about Jesus and were believing in him as Messiah. And uh, simply a church, literally the word church just means assembly or gathering. And so people started gathering, and a church happened, okay? Now, as it began to grow more and more, people began to think, uh, ooh, if I get involved in that, I might be able to... I might be able to gain some notoriety. If I become a teacher in the church, then uh, I might be able to gain financially uh, some fame and fortune. And so there were some false teachers who saw the church as a means to build themselves up, to get some money. And so uh, Paul had heard about this, and so he sends Timothy, his protege, to Ephesus to basically become the pastor of this church. And he says to him, look, dude, there's some things you need to do. You've got to weed out some of the false teachers Okay, they're, they're, they're pulling people away from the faith. You, you need to love these people. 
weep with them when they weep, rejoice with them when they rejoice, and he's supposed to be pastoring them. And so Paul's coming to the end of his life, and he wants Timothy to be reminded of some very important things as he loves these people, all right? Timothy was the Brad Powell of Ephesus, okay? So he says in verse 11, but you, man of God, speaking to Timothy, flee from all of this. He'd just been talking about the love of money. He says, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Like That was like two months worth of sermons, and I did it in like five seconds. You're welcome. And then he says this, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, now this is an important piece right here, this idea of taking hold, okay? We're actually going to come back to it a little bit later because Paul's going to repeat that command again. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, he's not saying that Timothy has somehow lost his salvation. He's not talking about when Timothy became a Christian. He's not saying, hey, Timothy, you need to take hold of this. Timothy's already a believer. But the word take hold in in the original language, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. I had to look this stuff up. But it's one word there. And the word is written in the aorist tense. Okay, you got past, present, future, in this case, aorist tense. Now, I, I, I will say, when I was in high school, I was one of those kids that was like a C's and D's get degrees kind of guy, okay? So I was not a good student when I was in high school, especially when it came to English. So I would have had no clue what in the world aorist tense meant until I looked it up. And it basically has this idea of it's a continuing action, a repetitive action. So basically what he's saying is this taking hold is something that is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And he's telling Timothy, dude, take hold of that eternal life. He's not saying you've somehow lost it. He's saying, though, that once you become a Christian, there's something that needs to happen continuously, something you hold on to, you grasp, you keep grasping, okay? And I'm going to explain what that means in just a little bit when we get down to it. It says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you, Timothy, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see to him be honor and might forever. Uh, Amen, he says. It's reminded me actually of what Brad talked about last week, right? You guys just finished up the series, The Wall, and Brad reminded us that God's ways are not our ways. And he said one of the best ways to help us get through is to focus on the Lord's Prayer. And how does the Lord's Prayer start out? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like, God's name is to be just praised and lifted up. Like, he alone deserves it. And and Paul here is so passionately in love with God that I, I just believe as he's writing this letter to Timothy, he just starts talking about God, and it just starts erupting out of him, right? And that's why we get this beautiful thing. King of kings, Lord of lords, the only ruler who's immortal, unapproachable, no one has seen him or can't see him. And he's like, ah, it's just coming out of him. That's good stuff, I'm just saying. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. It's just good stuff, people. All right. Verse 17. And now it's going to feel like he makes a left turn, but it actually flows right in to what he has to say. And, and I believe it's exactly what he wants to talk to us today about. Sorry, sound guy. 
Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, three key words, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I know as soon as I read verse 17, wherein it says, command those who are rich in this present world. A lot of folks in here are thinking to themselves, whoo, there's some people in here that need to hear that. <laughs> right, right? Because we always think everybody else is rich, not us, right? Like, uh, that dude over there, now he's rich. Now that lady, she's rich. Me, I, I'm just normal. Let, let's just, for the sake of argument, put this into perspective, okay? If you own one car in your family, that actually puts you in the 90th percentile of richest people in the world. If you and your family own two cars... That puts you in the 95th percentile, richest people in the world. If you happen to own two cars and you own your house, even with a mortgage, that puts you in the 99.5 percentile of richest people in the entire world. For the sake of argument, to humor a guest teacher, you're all going to say, yes, okay, I guess maybe I am rich, right? And riches come in all sorts of ways. Not just our financial riches, it's also the riches that we have in time. We live in one of the richest countries in the world that also affords us fantastic medical care. We live as long or longer than most of the people in the world. That means we also have a riches of years. Okay, there's all kinds of ways that we are rich. And certainly when Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, Command those who are rich in this present world, we, we can all at least recognize how some of this might apply to our lives. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And you know exactly what Paul's talking about if you bought a house in 2007. He says, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So let me also say this. If you've got a lot of stuff, you don't have to feel guilty for enjoying it. In fact, it was given to you to enjoy. Now, maybe if you stole it, you should feel guilty, okay? But that's another sermon for another. Like, God gave you everything that you have. And the reason you have it is so that you can enjoy it. But it's not only for you to enjoy. That's why he continues on. And he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And then he says, in this way, if they do that then this happens. Have you ever wished that you knew then something that you know now? Like like maybe you wouldn't have bought that house in 2007. Maybe you wouldn't have taken out all those student loans to get that degree that you haven't used in 20 years. Maybe you would have spent more time building into that relationship. Maybe you wouldn't have drafted Darko Milicek number two Mm-hmm. I don't have very many regrets in my life, but, but this is one. When I got to college, I really wanted to play soccer. I wanted to 
play soccer in, in college as a college athlete. I, I, that was always kind of a goal of mine. Now, I didn't start playing soccer until uh, later in life. I wasn't one of those kids who grew up playing it every Saturday or something like that. I, in fact, I didn't start playing soccer until I was in ninth grade. Uh, I went to, uh, I grew up in Flint. I went to Flint Northern High School. I can say go Vikings because the school doesn't even exist anymore. But when I was at Flint Northern, soccer was not a big sport at Flint Northern in the late 80s, okay? And so literally, if I went out for the team as a freshman who had never played soccer before in my life, not only was I going to make the team, I was actually going to play varsity, and I had a decent chance of starting, all right? So I went out for uh, soccer my freshman year, and uh, uh, we only had a varsity team, and we barely had enough people to actually field the team. I think I even did wind up starting a few games that freshman year. I wasn't very good, but I was learning, and I had some natural athletic ability. So I began to get better and better as the season progressed. In sophomore year, I played again. I got better and better. And then my junior year, I transferred to this tiny Christian school. My junior and senior year, I went to this Christian school called Genesee Christian. Now, uh, I told you, C's and D's get degrees kind of a guy. That's how I was in in school. I I, I like to tell people, though, that I graduated 35th in my graduating class. And people are like, whoa, that's actually pretty good. Until I tell them there was 37 <laughs> in my graduating class. All right? <laughs> so this was a really small school. So if you could chew gum and walk in a straight line, you were considered an elite athlete. All right? Like that was like, so me, I go out for soccer. I'm playing junior year. I had a really good season. Senior year, a really good season. And I thought to myself, man, I would really love to be recruited to play soccer someplace. But it never happened. Another good friend of mine got recruited. He played for a, a school on the west side of the state. And I wound up going to a community college my first semester, a small community college called Jordan College, first semester of freshman year, and they didn't have a soccer program. At the end of that time, I I transferred to a school down in Ohio called Cedarville University. So I missed my freshman year playing, and uh, at Cedarville, you didn't just try out for varsity. Like, you had to be invited to come out to play varsity soccer. So I tried out for the JV team. I made the JV team. I, I had a pretty decent season. And so the varsity coach actually came to me at the end of that season and said, hey, Torn, I'd really love it if you'd come and play varsity soccer for us next year. I was like, yes, right? Like, I was so excited. I was like, totally, yes, I would love to. What an honor. He's like, all right, well, um, when you come to camp, so you had to come to camp, basically soccer camp, two and a half weeks before school started. He's like, you have to be in shape. Game started like a week and a half later. Before school even started, we had some of our first games. And so we only had a little bit of time to prepare tactically to get ourselves ready. So he said, you have to come in shape, ready to go. And, and the way that coach checked to see if everybody was in shape is whether or not we could run two miles in 12 minutes. That's a six-minute mile pace. That's moving, folks. This body, okay, was not created to run long distances in short amounts of time, okay? I got little short stubby legs. Like, I might be quick, but I'm never going to be fast, all right? So for me to be able to run two miles in 12 minutes meant that I was going to have to put a lot of time in pounding the pavement that summer. Here's the problem, though. You see, I had always gotten by on natural ability. So I thought to myself, ah, man, no problem. Like, I'm going to get to camp. Line up. I'll bust out the two minutes or two miles in 12 minutes. It'll be all right. I'll be good. And so literally that summer, I went jogging twice. First day of camp, we get there. Coach says, out to the track. We all line up. He says, all right, two miles, 12 minutes, go. First lap around the track. I'm hanging with the lead pack. I'm doing all right. Second time around, I'm starting to lose the lead pack a little bit. Third time around, there definitely is a gap. Fourth time around, they're way ahead of me. One mile mark, I'm at five minutes and 55 seconds. I basically have to run 
the last four laps as fast or faster than I ran the first four, and it didn't happen. The closest I ever came was 12 minutes and 25 seconds, and coach knew I was not prepared. And as a result of that one thing, I wound up sitting the bench pretty much the entire year. When it came time for the soccer team to travel for playoffs, I was not asked to travel. And I didn't play soccer the rest of my college career. And I look back now, and I so wish someone would have come to me, and someone would have said, Torin, you little punk sophomore, you need to put in miles this summer. Because if you do this, this is what's going to happen. You see, I was a good enough player. I could have contributed to the team. I don't know that I would have started, but I definitely would have played. I could have been a contributor. But because I hadn't prepared myself, I wound up sitting the bench. And I so wish someone would have said, Torn, just put in the miles, dude. Like, come on. First week, we're going to be running three miles a day for five days. Next week, we're going to bump it up to four and then five. And by the time you get to camp, you're going to bust out two miles in 1130. And you're going to contribute. You're going to play. And I think that as a pastor, as a teacher of God's word, I have that responsibility to you guys to say, look, if you'll do this now, you get this later. If you, if you live this way, this is what happens. And, and if you don't, then, then, then this is what happens. Because I, I don't want you to get to the end of your life and look back and say, if only, I wish I would have. I wish I would have believed what God's word said. You see, he says, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. Right? When we don't put our hope in our wealth, when we actually do good, when we actually are rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share, in that way, we lay up treasure for ourselves. We take hold of the life that is truly life. There are some things we're not supposed to do and some things that we're supposed to do. If we don't the don'ts and do the do's, we actually get to experience the future in the present. Let me explain what I mean by that. Now I'm going to read a quote to you from a guy named Philip Towner. Philip Towner is a New Testament scholar. He's brilliant. He's really, really smart, way over my pay grade. And what I'm about to read to you takes a little bit of like, you got to hang with me to the end for it to make sense, okay? But I don't want you to fade out right now. I want you to really dig in because I'm going to talk about some kind of deep stuff. He's talking about this particular verse in verse 19 and this idea of taking hold. But he's going to refer back to the first time that Paul says it in verse 12, okay? So listen, he says, the previous phrase, eternal life, that's back in verse 12, take hold of the eternal life, Timothy, that you were called to. The previous phrase, eternal life, referring to verse 12, is described here in verse 19 as true or real life. Take hold of the life that is truly life, or the life that is real life. He says, this distinction continues the reversal of values by the paradoxical assertion that sharing wealth now is in reality an acquisition of heavenly wealth. Eternal life is meant, but in the way it is expressed, the life that is truly life, and by the repetition of the verb of verse 12, which echoes that command to take hold of. I know you're like, well, where are we going? Where are we going? Hang with. This is the, this is the money right here. The real possibility of beginning the experience of eternal life in the present age is confirmed. You see, what he's saying is that when we give now, right, 
We actually gain over here. You give away what you have. You give your life, your resources, your finances, your time to serve others, to love others. You're generous, willing to share. You give it here. You get it here. But a lot of times we think to ourselves, yeah, but, you know, T, like I get it, man, but like I'm not going to die for a long time. I'm giving a lot of stuff away, you know, like I'm not going to get to enjoy it till later. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to say. No, 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 that's not true. You give it now, you actually gain it there. But by giving it now and gaining it there, you actually take what's here and you drag it into the present. You actually begin to experience heaven on earth, the future in the present. The way that you get that is by giving away your life. Brad said last week, like, God's ways are higher than our, his ways are not our ways, right? This is exactly another way that that's applied to our lives, like in our economy, right? You don't give, you get. The question in the American economy is always, what's in it for me? How much are you going to pay me to do that thing? What am I going to get out of this? How is it going to benefit me? And what God is saying is, no, the more you give, the more you actually gain. When you give it away, you actually gain it. Look, I'm going to tell you, folks, I'm selfish. I don't like giving away my stuff. I like my stuff. I like getting more stuff. And yet I've seen time and time and time again that when I give myself away for the sake of others, I gain the future, I gain heaven, and I drag it into the present. Folks, Our lives absolutely matter. What we do now matters for eternity, but not just in eternity. It actually matters right now. We're supposed to tell great stories with our lives. Did you know that the same thing that makes a great life makes a great story? It's fairly simple. Every great story that's ever been written, every great movie you've ever watched, every great book you've ever read, there's always three things that they have in common, okay? Number one is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, all right? A character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, okay? In your life, you are the character. So you have to ask yourself, what do you want And then what conflict are you going to have to overcome to get it, right? Nothing's easy, especially the good stuff. A character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. So I've been working on this screenplay that I'm really hoping I can sell to like a a bigwig Hollywood studio that would want to buy it and turn it into a movie. But I'm going to fill you in on, on what I've got so far. So this is kind of how I envision it happening. There is a woman from suburban Pittsburgh and she's at a conference in New York City, and the movie starts off, the camera's following her, she's walking down Fifth Avenue, and she's just kind of looking around, and like, whoa. And she sees this little boutique of designer clothes, and she opens up the door and walks inside, and every single piece in there, her eyes just drawn to. She's like, oh my goodness, this stuff is gorgeous. Like, these clothes are absolutely beautiful. I would love to have these clothes in my closet. And she's looking at the tags, and they're like super expensive, thousands of dollars each piece. And, but everything, like, fits her perfectly. It's almost like the designer had designed every single piece of clothing as her as the model, okay? And she starts thinking to herself, I've got to have these. I've got to have these clothes. And so she's at the conference the rest of the weekend, and all she can do is think about, scheme about how she can amass 
enough money to be able to buy all these clothes. And so she goes home and she tells her son and her daughter that they can no longer be involved in piano lessons and karate lessons because mom's got to save some money and she pulls them out of that stuff. And the neighborhood kid who used to mow her lawn, she says, hey, you don't need to mow my lawn anymore. I'm not going to pay you anymore. I'm going to do it myself. And she stops tipping when she goes out to a restaurant. She kind of becomes known as the stingy lady around town. And she actually says, this is not going to get me there fast enough. So she says, I'm going to sell my nice house in this nice neighborhood. She sells it and she buys this tiny little house in a, in a rough neighborhood and, and her kids, her son and her daughter have to share a room together. But she takes a little bit of the money and she actually uses it to put an addition on this little house. But the addition's just on her bedroom. It's just an addition of a huge walk-in closet. She's super excited. And at the end of the movie, she walks in. She writes a check, lays it down. Men come in and take all the clothes off the racks. And just as the credits are about to roll, she walks to this walk-in closet, opens up the doors. The lights come on, and it's filled with these beautiful clothes. And everybody goes, ah. You're not clapping. You're telling me you wouldn't pay 10 bucks to go see that movie? I mean, it's got everything that I said a great story has to have, right? A character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Why would you not go and pay 10 bucks to see that movie? Because what she wants is stupid. That's why you would never go pay to watch that. That's a stupid thing to do a movie about because what she wants is dumb, right? We, we could put a dude in for the same thing, right? He, he sees the new BMW commercial. He's like, I've got to have the new BMW. And so he works long overtime hours sacrificing his family so he can walk into the dealership, be given a new set of keys, and drive off into the sunset. It's stupid. And yet all too often I find myself living that story. I think all of us do from time to time. You see, you have to want something worth wanting. All of us were created by God to have holy desires, holy wants. The best stories, as with the best lives, always involve saving the life of someone else. What do you want? Do you want to rescue orphans from being abused and exploited? You want to make it your life's goal to make sure that no little kid dies because they don't have clean drinking water. Do you, want to, do you want to walk alongside single moms to let them know that they matter to God and they matter to you? Do you want to be a light in your neighborhood or a light at your office in such a way that God gets glory because of the way that you serve and love others? Do you want to help high school kids learn how to listen to the voice of God. What do you want? The best stories always involve the saving of someone's life. You have to have a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Now, up until this point, everything that we've been talking about, though, is really Walter Mitty, right? It's a lot of daydreams, a lot of, like, what-ifs. So there's a guy named Donald Miller. He's an author. He's written a number of books, and he's really passionate about helping people think through their life as a story. So Donald Miller says that the way to actually get from simply daydreaming about what you want, what you think God's called you to, that holy desire that God has given you, to actually pursuing it, to actually doing something about it, he says story writers, storytellers, always use two things to move the story forward. Number one, they always envision the climactic scene and number two they always create then an inciting incident this is what takes it from simply being Walter Mitty 
daydreams to actual reality. So he talks about this back in uh, 2011. He had uh, lost a bunch of weight, but he still had a little bit to go of where he wanted to be. And he knew that if he simply created a a New Year's resolution, he wasn't going to do it. If he just gave some goals, he probably was going to leave them unfulfilled. And so he said, what I decided to do is write myself into a story. My stories are way more fun. Adventures are way more fun. So he said, what I decided to do is I was going to climb Mount Hood, a huge, tall mountain in the northwest. I was going to climb Mount Hood with a buddy. So he says, I had to envision the climactic scene. Right? He's like, I didn't want to get off the couch and actually go get on the stair stepper and get myself in shape so I could climb it. But he's like, I knew that if I was going to climb this mountain, I was going to have to be in good shape. Otherwise, the story turns into a tragedy. <laughs> So he says, I, I, I called my friend up. And he says, and together we imagined the climactic scene. He says, it was going to be early May. We woke up really early after four days on the mountain. We got out of the tent, packed everything up while it was still dark, and we started the final ascent. And we made it to the top of the mountain just as the sun was rising, the clouds at our feet, and we're standing there, and we take our picture together. Now, simply wanting to lose a little bit of weight and creating a story to do so, all right, that's a good thing, but that's not a holy want, right? Like, that's not a holy desire. What's your holy desire, and what's your climactic scene? Maybe for you, you want to rescue an orphan from being exploited or abused. So you envision. You're still jet-lagged from the day before, and you're walking down this sidewalk, and it's been raining that morning. You look ahead and there's that Soviet-era concrete building and you walk up to that old door and you pull it open as it creaks and you smell that dank, musty air as you're walking down the click of your heels on the concrete and you see that old, beautiful woman who has loved these orphans for so many years of her life and you take those papers that you've been working at for months and months and years and you hand it to her and then you look down at that beautiful little blonde haired blue eyed girl who's looking up at you with some confusion and a little bit of fear and you pick her up and even though you know she can't understand what you're saying you hold her close to your chest and you whisper in her ear I love you and you're mine you're mine forever Maybe your climactic scene looks more like this because you want, you want to rescue your neighbor, your surly old neighbor who nobody seems to get along with and you say, I want to show her the love of Christ. And so you begin to love her with a ferocity she could never see coming, right? You're over there, you're weeding her garden at times, you're shoveling snow off of her drive, you're baking her banana bread, and you're going over and writing her nice little notes of encouragement, and your climactic scene is being here on a Wednesday night for a baptism service, and she's standing in the baptismal tank, and she's talking about this crazy neighbor that she had who wouldn't shut up and wouldn't stop loving her and wouldn't stop being kind to her, and finally she had broken through these walls that you've had for so long and 
She says, Jesus Christ has changed my life and given me a hope that I never thought I could have. And I'm so excited to be able to tell the world that Jesus has changed me. And she's baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She comes back up out of the water and tears are just flooding down her face. And tears are flooding down your face. And everybody's like, ah. What's your climactic scene? What do you want? And what's it going to look like when you get it? And he says the second way now to move to actually beginning this journey, this adventure, to living this beautiful story, he says, is to create an inciting incident. My wife wanted to run a marathon for years. In fact, she started training for one back in college, but due to some circumstances, she wasn't able to run it. And so we had been married now for like 10 years. And she's been talking to me about running a marathon like so many times. And I've always been like, hey, Honey, I would love it. Go for it. Be great. Nothing ever happened. Talk, talk, nothing. Talk, talk, nothing. Finally, about six years ago, she comes to me and says, uh, I'm going to run a marathon. I really want to do this. I'm like, honey, great. That'd be awesome. You should do it. And then she went online. She filled out the form, and she paid her money. Now, in my family, I'm the spender. To get a dollar out of my wife's hand is one of those out of my cold dead hands kind of a thing, okay? Like, she is not one to, like, spend. So when she dropped some money on this thing, it was over. Like, she was doing it, right? And then what she also did is she wrote all of her friends to say, hey, I'm going to be running a marathon. I'd love your encouragement over the next few months as I prepare for it. She can't go back from that anymore, can she? She's paid the money. She signed up. That was my wife's inciting incident. And a few years ago, she finished the Grand Rapids Marathon. And it was awesome. And we were all there at the finish line to cheer her on. And she's crying and she's coming through. And she beat Oprah's times. We were all happy about that. And it was great. That was her inciting incident, though, where it goes from just simply being a dream to actually action. What would your inciting incident look like? Maybe what you want is to be a light in your neighborhood. Or, excuse me, at your work. Let's say that you, in your office you want to be a, a, a light, okay? And, and so what you're going to do on Tuesday, okay? On Tuesday you're going to send out an email to your coworkers. You're going to say, hey guys, 10 a.m., I've got juice and donuts at my cubicle, Can you join me for a quick second? And because you mentioned juice and donuts, all seven of them are going to be there, okay? They're going to surround your little cubicle, and they're going to start eating the donuts, and you're going to say to them, hey, guys, uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but uh, Jesus Christ has changed my life. And I don't think I've always done a great job of of sharing that and showing that. And so I want you guys to know from from here on on out, I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to to love you and serve you and, and, and to, to make you look good and to help you out. I want to see you be successful. <laughs> Some of you have butterflies just thinking about that conversation. Right? That would be an inciting incident. The next time that that really raunchy email comes through that you want to forward to your coworkers, you're probably going to think twice about it, won't you? Next time that things get really heated and tense in the office, you're probably going to think twice about gossiping about that one lady or that one guy or throwing that person under the bus, won't you? Because you've just created an inciting incident. You can't go back from it anymore. What will your inciting incident be? What's it going to take for you to move forward on the thing that you know God is asking you to do? The life you were intended to live a beautiful, powerful life. 
The cooler the thing God's calling you to, the bigger the thing, the more terrifying the thing, the greater the conflict is going to be, I promise you. There's going to be all kinds of people and thoughts that say, you can't do that, it's too much, it's too big. The greater the conflict, the greater the inciting incident had better be. For some of you, you maybe need to go online and buy a plane ticket this afternoon to go visit that compassion kid that you've been sponsoring for the last number of years. For some of you, maybe it means you go online and you sign up for the Haiti medical missions trip that Northridge is putting on. What is your inciting incident gonna be? Look, God reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter six that we shouldn't put our hope in our treasures or be arrogant because we have them, okay? Instead, we need to put our hope in God and use our treasure to do good, to be generous sharers, to give our lives away. Because when we do that, we actually begin to live the future in the present. In God's economy, the more you give, the more you gain. So what I want to do right now is I simply want to take 30 seconds and let you sit in silence and simply ask God, God, what is the holy want you have for me? God, what do you want me to want? And we're simply going to sit in silence And if you're willing, and I know this is a little bit weird probably, but I'd love it if you'd simply hold your palms open and say, God, whatever you want, place it in my hands right now. 30 seconds to just sit before him. We no longer sketch monsters on the map. We erase them because we find their presence unintimidating. It is not monsters, but God who guards the edges of the abyss. And he gently calls us out from the comfort of the known world, at least for a little while. So if someone were to ask you on your deathbed what it was like to live here on earth, perhaps your honest answer could be good, but not safe. And it continues on in so many others because I took hold of the life that is truly life. For some of you in here this morning, your inciting incident may be to actually give your life to Christ for the very first time. Maybe you know that God has been knocking on your heart's door for a number of weeks, maybe even months. And you've been saying, but I don't know, I'm not sure, I don't know if I'm ready. Today God is calling out to you. If you'd like to receive Christ for the very first time, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would love if you would simply pray along with me right now. Dear God, I need you. God, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died on the cross and rose back to life three days later, just as he promised. God, forgive me for all the wrong that I've done. God, come into my life. Become my father, my leader, my king, my Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 
And God, I'm sure there's a number of other folks here that God, you spoke to them. You spoke to them in that time of silence, God, and you maybe gave them a holy want. God, I pray right now for those who are saying, Lord, what's that next step, God? What's that inciting incident? How do I actually make the story move forward? God, I pray that you would help me, God, all of us, be people who live beautiful lives, God, who are willing to give away what you have given to us, to be generous in our sharing, God, so that we can take hold of the life that is truly life. God, I so want that myself. I pray for those who are wrestling with something, God, right now. I pray for their courage. I pray that they would be reminded that more than any other command in the Bible that you gave was simply this, do not fear, for I am with you. God, thanks so much for Christ, for giving him to us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you gave your life to Christ for the first time, we've got a connection card that you can rip out. It's a little spot on the bottom you can just check off and drop into one of the boxes on your way out because we'd love to connect with you a little bit more. If you'd like someone to pray with you, we're going to have some folks down front who would love to pray with you this morning. Thanks so much for coming out, and go Hawks. See you guys next week.